Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined by Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Boston Calling extortion trial with our colleague Isaiah Thompson, who's covering it for WGBH News. But first, Peter Kadzis, I want to get your take on former special counsel Robert Mueller's recent congressional testimony. When you and I were on WGBH radio right before it started, you said that Mueller is an 18th century figure operating in a 21st (laughs) century political environment. What did you mean by that? Well, I meant uh, he is at heart an old-fashioned guy. Um, Specifically, he has a strong set of internal values, an inner moral compass that um, uh, the founding fathers might have been more familiar with than political figures today. I'm not pretending that the founding fathers were angels, but... um, People like George Washington and Hamilton and uh, Thomas Jefferson set great store on how they were perceived by the public. But by the same token, they wouldn't let the idea of personal vanity get in the way of their doing their duty. Um, They they lived in – there was a tension between their um, inner resolve and the, the, the public's attitudes. And I think we saw that very much in, in um, the special prosecutor's testimony. How did you see that tension play out as the day progressed? Uh, his one word answers. Um, the fact that he was uncomfortable being there. Look, the fact of the matter is um, he, he, he was... He did not want to be there. Um, and I can partly see why now. I mean, he's almost 75 years old. I know from a, 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 a professional friend of mine who knows, who's known Mueller since 1984 that his hearing isn't as good as it used to be. That was pr- pretty obvious. I mean, it's amazing to me in some ways um, that in a, a tightly knit city like Washington, D.C., um, the fact that he he wasn't on his A game uh, f- physically wasn't widely known. It's clear the Democrats, you know, wanted him up there. Uh, much more shocking to me was the the disrespect he was shown repeatedly by the Republicans. Um, he is, after all, a lifelong Republican. And uh, it was the Democrats pointing out that he was a decorated Vietnam vet, Marine hero. Yeah, incredible record of public service, going all the way back to his military service, but not just limited to it. And as you know, I frequently took issue with him when he was FBI director, but I I do think he's a man who's personally above reproach, and you would never have known that. You know, he is, from the way the Republicans treated him, what's interesting here is Uh, This hearing was, I think, an important cultural moment because it it shows the degree to which the image has totally supplanted the written word. The, the, The team of special prosecutors put out a brick of a report. People had weeks, months to read it, but it's almost as if what's in that report doesn't matter until it appears on television. Um, it's a fact of life. Uh, uh, you, you know, whether you like it or not, I don't like it, but it's immaterial. 
Um, it's the that, way it is. That's the way it is. And that was my big takeaway. All right. Now on to our main event. Right now, two members of Boston Mayor Marty Walsh's administration are on trial in federal court accused of extortion for allegedly forcing the Boston Calling Music Festival to use union labor back in 2014. The two defendants, Kenneth Brissett, Boston's head of tourism and entertainment, and Timothy Sullivan, the city's intergovernmental affairs chief, have both pleaded not guilty. Uh, Isaiah Thompson, first off, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. The charges against Brissett and Sullivan were dismissed a year ago. Pardon me, I should say a year and a half ago, right? More like that. So the charges against Brissett and Sullivan were dismissed a year and a half ago. So for anyone who might have missed it, what are these two doing back in court? Yeah, so this case has been dragging on for for three years now, which is quite a long time. And there was a lot of legal wrangling back and forth, which happens, especially in federal cases. People should understand this is a case in federal court and sort of everything. The stakes are higher. The lawyers are are more more, lawyerly, more lawyerly. (laughs) Yeah, more high high power lawyers on both sides. Um, uh, So and things do move more slowly often. But what happened was um, there there was some very serious legal dispute over whether the prosecution's charge, which is extortion, um, even really fit this case. Uh, you know, when we hear extortion uh, and the laws that are being used to charge here, you know, these are laws that are used against organized crime, that are used against the mafia, racket, big racketeering cases. You put this cigarette machine in your restaurant and you give us 50 percent of the income kind of stuff, right? That's right. A protection racket, that kind of thing. And um, what the defense was arguing was that even sort of given the facts being alleged by the prosecutors that which, you know, namely that these two men, um, uh, in order to please their pro-union boss, Marty Walsh, conspired to shake down Boston Calling to use pressure that they had over permits, over light, you know, as powerful people in City Hall to pressure Boston Calling into hiring union workers they didn't want or didn't need. Well, the defense said, this is an extortion, even if everything you're saying happened. And a judge, when prosecutors admitted that they could not prove, their evidence would not show that either of these defendants was seeking personal benefit, was trying to obtain something for themselves. Um, the judge said, well, you don't have extortion here. And, and the case was dismissed. Now, an appellate court uh, disagreed and and sent the case back for trial. And so here we are. Is this potentially uh, Supreme Court level stuff? If this proceeds, uh, I guess it would have to end in a conviction. But I'm just wondering if that theory of extortion, that you can extort even if you're receiving no personal benefit, do you know if it's been tested at the Supreme Court level? So I unfortunately don't know that's right. well, that's about two Supreme us. Court law to answer the question. But well, what, Peter Katz, what I will I say, Peter I, 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 however, do know. <laughs> um, the U.S. Supreme Court has substantially narrowed the definitions of what political corruption are. Remember the case with the uh, governor of Virginia that went on for yep. so long? So the Supreme Court has really tightened things up a lot. Um, I think there would be a good chance if this went to the Supreme Court that this, you know, might be overturned, might, I don't really know, uh, under new narrower things. It it could also be overturned before it even got there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that it got bounced back, though, means there's a question mark. 
The bottom line is I'm not sure how much is really at stake here. We're talking about non-union jobs. Now, I know the law is about principle, and, um, but I, I'm not sure that this would grasp the imagination of the Supreme Court. Isaiah, I floated that question right when you were sort of building to a crescendo, and because I've got such a good ear for conversation, I completely cut you off. So do you remember where you were before I interrupted you? No, but <laughs> but um, but one thing maybe I'll add to that discussion, I don't know whether this would go to the Supreme Court or not or what would happen, but what I will say is that the stakes, at least for this U.S. Attorney's Office, um, I think are pretty high because something that listeners might not know but should that's Im- important background to this is that there was another extortion case brought by the same U.S. Attorney's Office, although under a different U.S. attorney than uh, than is now in place uh, against a group of Teamsters for allegedly extorting uh, the Top Chef show when it was filming in Boston. So they, you know, they had picketed, they had showed up at this filming location. They weren't happy. There were some tires got slashed. There were no witnesses that connected who slashed them, but there were uh, reasonable pretty, people can make inferences. Yeah, there were pretty ugly. There, there wasn't much dispute that there were pretty, pretty nasty, pretty threatening things said by these Teamsters. Well, the lawyers for the Teamsters said, yeah, maybe, but that's not extortion. This is not racketeering. This is union members, may, maybe not acting as well as they could have been, but this is not a federal extortion case. And the jury agreed. The men were acquitted, which does not happen that often in federal court. Well, now you have the same U.S. Attorney's Office um, filing similar charges, but against two members of the Walsh administration in a rather similar circumstance. So I think the stakes are rather high here. The defense is making a similar case that they're going to try to convince the jury, hey, whatever else you see here, you don't see extortion. Well, let me just add a note that um, in, in the, 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 the first Teamsters case, what was the name of the chef? It was Padma Lakshmi, yeah, that former was, paramour of Salman Rushdie. Right. That, that was the chef's name. What was the name of the show? Was it oh, Top, Top Chef? Top Chef. In the Top Chef case, um, the feds overcharged, or maybe this should have been brought in a state court for lower charges. As is so often the case, the prosecutors went for the moon. They went for the the harshest charge they could get instead of something that might have been a little more appropriate to the bad behavior. Isaiah, in the first week of the trial, what has struck you? Yeah, so a few things have struck me. I, I think one thing that's striking about this case is that there are sort of a few different levels of alternative narratives or competing narratives, let's say, you know, so so one of them, you know, on the one hand, this is to some extent a case about the Walsh administration and the boundaries of, you know, what is um, improper, you know, the improper use of, of government, of, of, of public service, of public power to sort of exert pressure. What are the boundaries of that? But, but on the other hand, um, you know, what are the rights of uh, a duly elected pro-union mayor and his duly appointed administration to advocate in certain circumstances uh, on behalf of unions. There is absolutely a a legal and proper role for that. And um, the defense is going to argue very strongly that the fact that um, 
you know, obviously these things will also come down to details, right? And the details are really what matters. Did anybody say, we won't give you a permit if you don't? Well, it doesn't seem like it so far. Um, was it improper to, to sort of push this festival right at the last minute to hire members of the Stagehands Union? I don't know, but uh, is improper criminal? There's a lot of different questions here. Um, another thing that strikes me about this case, and this is sort of more getting into the weeds and the details of the case, but of course, you know, for these two defendants whose freedom is at stake, let's remember, that really matters. It really matters who said what, who did what. And I think these cases can kind of get blown up in the abstract, and people may sort of think they know what happened. But the point of a trial is that you hear from witnesses, you hear details, you hear, you know, much more detail about what happened. And so far, what I will say that we've seen from the defendants, um, there's a couple things. For one, defendant Timothy Sullivan has appeared very little in testimony so far. And I think there is a question sort of hanging over this case as to exactly how significant his role was in any of this. Um, Kenneth Brissett's name has come up a lot more. He was the one talking to Boston Calling. He was the one going back and forth. But so were other people from the administration. And there's been testimony, including from the CEO of Boston Calling, Brian Appel, that just paints a more complicated picture, you know, conversations where it's not, you know, it's not clear so far from the testimony whether at times Kenneth Brissett was was exerting pressure on Boston Calling or even Top Chef in a different circumstance to hire union workers, or was he trying to facilitate or avoid a really nasty picket on, on public property, on City Hall Plaza? And another thing complicating this case is that because this festival was being held on City Hall Plaza... Uh, it's a little bit different than having uh, someone from government just kind of insert themselves into a purely private transaction. I mean, this was the city's property. The city, this was Mayor Walsh's backyard, as someone testified. And the city did have an interest in preserving the peace and avoiding a really nasty scene and in having the festival go off well. And, you know, if well means trying to avoid having a union picket, which they can't control per se, uh, perhaps that is a legitimate use of, of of government and of power. That's a point where you make it and it seems so obvious, but I've never thought of it in the terms that you just laid out. That's oh. really interesting. Peter, I see you wanted to hop in. Well, here. a couple of things. First of all, I should point out on behalf of both Adam and I that we worked with Brian Appel at the Boston Phoenix. Thank you. And um, more specifically, I, I can bring some personal knowledge to this because for several years and on several occasions, I was a direct contact with Boston City Hall during the Menino administration on setting up um, the relationships and the ground rules for uh, uh rock concerts run by WFNX and the Boston Phoenix. So I, I'm in the odd position of, of personally negotiating with the city about this. And I can tell you unreservedly, there was never a question of um, uh, being required to use any union labor. Um, however, um, the Boston Calling Festival is... A, a, a different beast. It was a big for-profit, is a big for-profit um, enterprise 
that uh, it's now at, was at Harvard Stadium. I'm not sure where it's going next. Uh, it, it may even be staying there. Um, it, it was, it's of another scale of magnitude. But nevertheless, um, you know, I, I dealt with that tourism office directly. To me, uh, let me make a correction too, not to you so much, but whoever described it as it's the mayor's own backyard, I would beg to differ. It's the citizen's backyard. And as a resident of the city of Boston, I would say that it's as much my backyard as it is Marty Walsh's backyard. Um, so, you know, Brissett didn't want the big rat, the inflatable rat that the union set up on Boston City Hall. Well, in a way, too bad. I understand that, by the way. I'm being a wise guy when I say too bad. When you've got a pro-union mayor, you don't want that happening. Now, Menino wasn't as closely associated with unions as um, Mayor Walsh is, but trust me when I say I knew Mayor Menino much better than I know Mayor Walsh. Mayor Menino would not be amused at the the sight of that rat on on Boston uh, uh, City Hall Plaza. To me, in in ha- having followed this very closely in the first trial, there's an issue of transparency. If if th- there are no city regulations saying you need union labor on Boston City Hall Plaza, and by the way, I could see a set of regulations that go something like, you know, not-for-profit concerts don't need it, but concerts with, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z need to employ union leadership, for uh, uh, labor, for whatever reasons. There's nothing transparent about this. Um, you know, to me, there's something that smells. However, <laughs> something may smell here, but just, just how badly does it smell? Again, I'm speaking only for myself and based largely on the testimony from the last trial. Is this something you send someone to the federal slammer for? I don't know. I mean... Um, it, it, it doesn't seem proportional. Now, the U.S. Department of Justice has next to zero interest in proportionately charging people, rightly. It, I mean, this does, I, I guess I'm of the opinion that, you know, something went wrong here. But at the same time that I suggest something went wrong here, I don't think it rises to the level of sending someone to the federal slammer. Isaiah, as Peter was making that last point, I think I saw you jotting something furiously in your steno pad. What were you jotting? Well, I had actually scribbled proportion down a little bit earlier because I think that that, that Peter's, you know, hit on a very important part of all of this. Um, although, you know, the question of proportion should be separated out from the important question of whether any crime was committed in the first place. And I think to be fair to the, you know, that has to be said. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think that that one has to ask why um, with with all the sort of, you know, uh, all the different levels of, of problems that we have in society, some, many of which have criminal components, <laughs> uh, you know, here you had a new administration. You had two new hires in this new administration. Uh, look, I don't know. You know, it's not for me to say whether a crime was committed and the prosecution seems to think there was one. But still, uh, to try and prove a, 
a racketeering case from what was clearly a number of of, of conversations that involved a lot of different people in government that involved private citizens going back and forth. Uh, you know, I think there's a question, especially when you combine this with the recent stuff with the Teamsters, as to whether this is the way, this is the correct avenue, these kind of big racketeering type charges to try and address what may or may not be um, uh, improper conduct within government. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to get at that if that is an issue. Uh, it's worth going back to the roots of how all this started. And if I remember correctly, and my memory isn't what it used That's to be. That's two of us, yeah. Yeah. But I remember a front-page Boston Globe story that said the feds, the FBI, had Mayor Walsh on tape at a time when he was a state representative and head of the building trades union um, negotiating or, you know, to talking about terms of construction for a project in, I believe, Somerville. Now, interestingly enough, just because the FBI has you on tape discussing something doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. I think we could all assume that if there was any evidence of the mayor having done something wrong, they would have nailed him. Sounds like the headline could have been labor leader advocates for union jobs, which, Some, yeah. Something like that. By the way, let me make this clear. There is no evidence that Marty Walsh did anything wrong. I, I'm making no suggestion. Yeah. The feds were clearly looking into what they thought might be corruption in the building trade unions. It's not something that's unheard of, that that the, the then AFL-CIO bigwig, now Mayor Marty Walsh, was caught in that. Well, that happens. I bring this up not to smear the mayor, but to show that the feds may have an incentive here. You, you know, they... It's a, a, a regular technique that you go to trial, you investigate, you start low and try to shake shake the trees. You, you try to flip witnesses. Look, we began by talking about the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller. That's they true. did that in a, you know, on a grand national slash international scale. Well, in a much smaller way, I think that's what the local... Uh, federal Department of Justice apparatus was trying to do. And to me, it seems like they didn't find anything. They thought this was a, a way to proceed, and they haven't had the common sense to just drop it when they were given an easy out. Just as an aside, my recollection is that Mayor Walsh, I'm probably going to get the official name wrong, but he was the head of the Boston Building Trades, right? So not Didn't AFL I say Building Trades? You trade? said AFL-CIO. Oh, oh I'm sorry. There. No, no, it's the kind of mistake I make all the time myself. But so. the Building Trades, that is what I meant. Again, j just to repeat, it's curious. The Boston Calling trial is an offshoot of an investigation, a larger investigation into potential union corruption in Boston that apparently hasn't gelled or yeah. hasn't gelled yet. So, Isaiah, when the mayor was mentioned in the opening prosecution arguments, what was the reaction in the room? 
I'm glad you asked about that because it was an interesting moment, right? So um, the trial, uh, as they do, opened with opening remarks from the federal prosecutors. And uh, I don't have the line in front of me, but it was within the first sort of paragraph was, uh, you know, uh, these men uh, committed extortion. They, they, they tried to illegally pressure Boston Calling into hiring laborers they didn't want and didn't need, and they did it to please their boss, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. And then, and then Mayor Walsh's name came up, I would say, a good half dozen times in, the, in those opening arguments. We have heard very little about Boston Mayor Marty Walsh in any of the actual huh. testimony since. So, you know, there was a lot of speculation when this broke that, oh, you know, the, the next shoe is going to drop. And, and I so think far, I remember I think I remember asking Mayor Walsh if he'd spoken with a grand jury. Yeah. And, you know, he hadn't answered the question previously and he didn't answer it when I asked him. And it was an awkward thing to have to ask. But, yeah, there was a ton of speculation. Yeah. But, I, you know, so far there has been very little testimony that has has even in, involved, mentioned, touched on Mayor Walsh. He did he did appear in some testimony from Brian Appel. Brian Appel met with Mayor Walsh. Mayor Walsh was supportive of, of Boston Calling and, in fact, was supportive of uh, allowing a sort of freer flowing um, liquor license, which they had been asking for. Um, so. You know, we'll see. There could be, you know, you never know what's coming in a trial, but there just doesn't seem to be, you know, neither in the indictment or in the testimony thus far, uh, very much about Mayor Walsh. Um, so one wonders if the, the fact that his name came up so much in the opening arguments actually speaks, it could perhaps indicate that that's the only place it's going to appear. That's, that's funny, right. Make it extra exciting. Get it in there at the start of that. Yeah, well, but also, I mean, it's important for the prosecution's argument because the prosecution, in order to show extortion, has to show a criminal motive. There has to be, I mean, these guys didn't receive any money. There was no payoff. So in lieu of to benefit themselves, it's to please their boss. Look, when, when, when Isaiah mentioned to me, I, I've been editing Isaiah's stories, just so the listeners know. And I, you know, th- throughout this whole thing, I've been scratching my head, scratching my head. And then Isaiah mentioned, well, you know, they wanted to avoid the picket. And that made sense to me. He says, and you know, who wants that infl- big inflatable rat? And I hit myself with the void. Said, of course, this makes perfect sense. You got new City hall flunkies who don't want their boss ticked <laughs> off because the, in, the the inflatable rat is outside okay, his so window. It, All of a sudden, it becomes a perfect political story, and it gets even better when you have the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice going after him. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, let me close by asking both of you, Peter, as I've said in this uh, space before, I learned pretty much everything I know about Boston politics from you back at the Phoenix. Isaiah, you, like me, are not from here. Uh, you've lived in a lot more places than me, you at Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami. Um, yeah, good, so you've uh, got you you've it. got good perspective from the outside. I'm curious about what both of you think the potential political implications are or are not here for Mayor Walsh. And obviously a lot hinges on whether, you know, you hear more about him as testimony unfolds or whether there's a, a conviction or not. But just just speculatively, uh, what do you think is at stake for him here, if anything? It, look, you know, politics is not my forte um, for sure. But, 
you know, Walsh, when, when, when this first broke, there was all this speculation. You know, there was kind of a, a seemingly a shadow over Mayor Walsh. And I think it's fair to say that Mayor Walsh um, stuck his chin up. He stuck up for the people he had hired. He unapologetically said, uh, I'm not firing them. I, they, I don't believe they've done anything wrong. Um, now they are going on trial. He's maintained that he's done nothing wrong. There have been no charges against him. And there haven't really been any insinuations about his behavior personally in this case. So it seems to me that uh, if the defendants are prevail, um, that, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it shows that Mayor Walsh um, stood up to pressure um, and, and, and not just pressure, but pressure coming from people who are skeptical of or even uh, antagonistic to labor and and that kind of background, right? I mean, there's, you know, there, there's an older school component of that that perhaps uh, newer entrepreneurial types d- don't relate to, don't like maybe. Good point. Um, and, and, you know, but that's Marty Walsh's background. It's not his only background. I think he's excited about entrepreneurialism, but that's his background. He's proud of it. He hasn't backed down from it. And uh, and I think if the defendants are acquitted, that will mean that uh, people might not like the way his administration was sort of behaving in, in that case, or some people might not like it, but that doesn't make it wrong. He, he I, 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 I think Mayor Walsh, you know, comes off up to now is a stand-up guy. You know, he has st- stood by the people who are, who are accused. So stand-up guy is good in Boston politics. In Boston politics, there's always about 30%, more or less, of the electorate that whomever is mayor, they're opposed to him for reasons good, bad, or indifferent. This is the group you've previously labeled the soreheads, right? The soreheads. Yes, I, I, I am often among the soreheads, <laughs> so I say that with, with certain affection. Um, but um, th- there'll be a mayoral election in two years, and if they are found guilty, uh, even, if that, e- e- even if that were to be overturned later on, you know, th- that's something. Um, that's a scab to pick at. Um, but I'll tell you, I mean, I've been around, you know, I've known every single mayor since Kevin White. Um, and, you know, I have a pretty good feel, and it's only a feel. Um, the, the Walsh administration does not feel corrupt to me. Um, th- there are loads of things I question. But, you know, t- talking real Chicago-style corruption, it, it, it you know, it, it, it doesn't doesn't feel like that. So um, I got I got to give I got to ask Isaiah if he's cool with that as a Chicago native. You all right with Peter's characterization there? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I mean the 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 best thing the mayor has going for him right now in terms of downside is we got Donald Trump. You know, there we have real stakes. Um this is not unimportant, but um this is at best a political footnote. All right. That is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Isaiah Thompson, thanks a ton for doing this. It was really fun to have you. Oh, it was a blast. Peter Kadzis, as usual, the pleasure was mine. (laughs) All mine, Adam. (laughs) And, of course, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. 
We'd love it if you subscribed to The Scrum. If you haven't already, you can find us pretty much anywhere you get your podcast content. Also, please leave a review if you have a chance. That is a big help when it comes to getting The Scrum into more people's ears. You can talk back to us via email. We're at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And Isaiah, what's your Twitter handle? I meant to write it down, but I didn't. I am at Isaiah underscore Thompson. Excellent. Our engineer today was John Parker. We get crucial production help from him, Andrew Masowa, Doug Sugarts, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.